It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 12, 2009. Yeah, I'm still easing into this whole 41 thing. It doesn't feel that much different. I have a lot more gray hair today than I did yesterday, though. It's <laughs> and that's not a joke. It actually is coming in in clumps now. Anyway, all right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying to the Word of God, including me. Yeah, that's right. I'm not exempt from this little exercise. And we try to have some fun along the way. I know that might seem sacrilegious, but the way I look at it is is that God's the one who invented humor, and only Satan and pietists don't have a sense of humor. So I like to upset both Satan and pietists. So it's fun. Anyway. <laughs> All right, we got an interesting program today. Got a lot of listener email we're going to be getting to. Um, and then... <laughs> We have Patricia King news. Apparently, uh, she's now promoting supernatural rain. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm just really hoping that she has a license to do this because we might have to get a whole new uh, channel on cable now. It, not, not just the weather channel, but the supernatural weather channel after you hear what's going on here. So you definitely don't want to miss the Patricia King news. Uh, bad news regarding the religion of peace. Apparently, they still haven't figured out how to be peaceful. Uh, the Taliban have executed two Christians, and we'll talk about that story. And then in the strange but true category, we've got a, um, a story coming out of the Christian Post uh, regarding the fact that many churchgoers and pastors apparently are struggling to define the term spiritual maturity. Oh, boy. And, uh, and then we're going to get to Exodus chapter 10 today. And then we have a sermon review from the Journey Church in New York City. Uh, called From Stress to Rest. And oddly enough, it's a belated Easter sermon review that we're going to be doing here from Stress to Rest. And uh, after today's uh, sermon, I'm sure you're going to be convinced, as well as I will, I already am at this point, uh, that uh, the Journey Church needs to be in our regular rotation as far as seeker driven churches that we review sermons from uh, just to show people what not to do. So. Grab a beverage, make yourself comfortable, grab your fuzzy bunny slippers if you're in a place where you can where you can do that, and sit back and enjoy the ride. It's going to be a fun, fun program today, and educational and, and informational, because we're going to be talking about the means of grace, too. Yeah, I got an email from Chick 1 and Chick 3, and I got to answer that, and so <clears throat> as a result of it, we're going to be talking about the means of grace, but I think that's way down the list. All right, here we go. First email from... Michael, not sure where Michael's from. Michael didn't tell me his town. But he says, Chris, I know that you are very well versed in the Bible. I believe I am as well. This is good. He says, however, I'm stumped. Maybe you can help me. He says, when Jesus sent out his 12, uh, Jesus' followers, and then later the 70, what were the results of their seeker survey to discover what the unchurched folks wanted Jesus to teach about? Search as I might, I can't seem to find out this little piece of invaluable information. Did they want to know how to be better Pharisees or how to raise better children? 
to keep little Johnny uh, from being stoned for disobeying mommy. Maybe they wanted to learn the secrets of obtaining gold coins from fish. I wonder if Jesus spoke sermons on the latest events uh, in the Colosseum. Uh, did Jesus throw his support for Nero? Just wondering. Now, Michael, you, you, this is a this, this good series of questions here. I've got to point out the fact, though, the Colosseum was not built. At, you know, it was, the, Jesus was prior to the building of the Colosseum. The Colosseum doesn't come until after Nero. And um, one of the reasons it was built was to cover over uh, a very hated building project that Nero had uh, done. So, um, so we got, we got to make sure that we're, if we're going to ask good questions like this, that we don't throw in like some historical anachronisms, things that just don't belong. You know, for instance, you know, if I were to say that Jesus had a, a real love affair with microwave burritos, we would probably accuse me of not knowing anything about Jesus at that point. So you got to be careful, but you know, you do bring up a good point and that is, is, um, where does it talk about the surveys that Jesus conducted to discover and divine what it is with the unchurched people wanted to hear. Hang on a second here. Um, I'm sure it's in here somewhere. Um, survey. Um, let's see here. Uh, do a, I'm going to do a word search. Survey. Here we go. No, it's not there. Um, hang on a second. Uh, seeker sensitive. Okay, hang on a second. No, that's not it. How about casting... Vision. No, that's not there either. Um, you know, Michael, I'm stumped. I mean, I'm using my high-powered Macintosh computerized Bible, the uh, Accordon software, which is probably one of the best pieces of software on the market. You know, um, does it has to be there? I'm just frustrated. The unchurched. Okay, let me uh, let me read read the question. Maybe I'm missing something here. It says Jesus followers and later they were. What were the results of their seekers survey to discover what the unchurched folks wanted to teach? What did Jesus to teach about? You know, that's a. Uh, maybe if I looked up unchurched. Hang on, unchurched. No, that's not in there either. It, you know, Michael, I'm stumped. I just. I mean, how on earth could Jesus possibly even remotely think that he could pull off ministry and and have a thriving, numerically growing uh, community uh, of people that were his followers if he didn't go out and conduct a survey of the unchurched folks around the Judean countryside asking them what they wanted him to teach about? Huh. Huh. Oddly enough, not only did Jesus seem to not do this, neither did his disciples. Hmm. You know, tell you what, Michael. I mean, it. I I just. I'm. I'm sure there's a lot of seeker drive, seeker driven guys out there that don't believe that this is actually possible. That it's actually possible to conduct ministry without first asking the unchurched what they want to hear. Um, so we'll, we're going to put the, uh, the Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio Research Departments to work on this to see if they can find any uh, extant evidence within the uh, New Testament canon uh, that will give shed some light on uh, the results of the seeker-driven surveys that they obviously have to have conducted. I mean, because you can't, can't possibly expect to do ministry uh, and have it be successful. Uh, without asking the unchurched people what they want to hear. 
<clears throat> All right. Uh, moving to the next uh, email, Terry writes, and he doesn't tell me. Terry doesn't say where he or she is from. Now this is this is get work. It's real care. I gotta be real careful. Last time I there was a person who had a name that could go either way. I picked the wrong one. So all I know is that a person named Terry writes and asks two questions. Chris, whatever happened to John? Okay, well, great question. Uh, for those of you who don't who remember John, John was uh, with with was an employee who worked for Pirate Christian Radio while we were getting up and running. And uh, John uh, would often be in studio with me when I would do my program when we were located in that fine coastal town city. In California with a really great Mexican food. Um, sorry, I was just thinking about the Mexican food there. Um, John didn't make the move to Indiana with us, and um, and currently Pirate Christian Radio does not uh, make enough money to have employees other than, uh, well... <laughs> So uh, John is still in California, and John is actually getting ready to get married. And so I, I think that prompt, the fact that he, he and his fiance, uh, you know, she works in a school district, uh, they didn't really want to make the move out to uh, Indiana with us. And so as a result of it, you know, um, we sadly had to say goodbye to John. I still communicate with him from time to time, and he's a great guy and, and do miss him uh, terribly. But I'm very thrilled for him and, and his fiance and their upcoming marriage. Um, it, second question is, could you talk about how you and Bob DeWay originally met and how you came to uh, to meeting together with Rick Warren? Okay, th- th- little story time here. Uh, Bob DeWay and I actually met at Saddleback Church for the first time. However, we uh, we had been in communicate we had communicated a couple of times uh, via uh, phone conversations that I had initiated because of reading his stuff on the internet. Um, let's I'll put it this way: I, I am a fan of Bob DeWay in the sense that he is. Well spoken, well read, does his homework, does his research, and when Bob Dewey sits down to do an article, okay, he does an article. And the nice thing about it is, is that it's good, high quality, well researched, well footnoted stuff that he puts out. And so, I think Bob and I had talked maybe once or twice prior to actually meeting each other out in California. And the way that came about is uh, Saddleback, uh, during last year's purpose-driven community conference, prior to that, they uh, Saddleback is what I consider to be a public relations move, invited Rick, uh, all of Rick Warren's vocal and outspoken critics to come and attend the conference uh, on them. All expenses paid. Now, Bob uh, couldn't make it out for the, the entire conference, and I, at the time, lived in a wonderful Southern California coastal town, which has fantastic Mexican food and Italian food, too, if you think about it. I don't know if you've ever heard of Sonny's. In, uh, in, uh, I'm making myself hungry. Um, anyway, <clears throat> sorry. But um, So I made the, the 25, 30-minute trip up to a Saddleback every day and attended the conference, and... Um, Bob and I were the only two people that took up Rick Warren on this offer. You know, even though we, I, I think I know of about a half a dozen people who were invited to attend, uh, and everyone else turned him down. So because everyone else turned him down, it just turned out to be Bob and I. We had the privilege of being, uh, you know, two witnesses. You know, in that sense. So that's how I 
uh, came to know uh, really know uh, Bob Dewey face to face. And uh, we communicate from time to time still and uh, enjoyed having him on the program last week. In fact, he was on the Issues Etc. today talking about theophostic prayer and contemplative centering prayer, uh, both of which you would definitely not want to be participating in. But uh, so anyway, I hope that answers your question. Um, But I have the ultimate respect for Bob. In fact, we had him for dinner. Uh, had him over for dinner the uh, the night that uh, he and I had met with Rick Warren, and uh, <laughs> it was over dinner that we were trying to kind of decompress and debrief on what it is that had happened. All right, uh, Devin from Northern Ireland writes, okay, he says, I was just listening to your podcast from May 5th where you were contemplating what Jesus' signature ultimate fighting move would be. I believe you can find that in John chapter 18, verse 6. Hold on a second here. Pulling up my handy-dandy computerized Bible, John chapter 18. So, yeah, we were, I do recall we were discussing and, and pontificating and speculating as to what Jesus' ultimate fighting move would be. And uh, let's see. So this is uh, John at chapter 18. This is where Jesus is being arrested. Let me back up context here. Um, verse 5 it says, They answered him, Je- uh, Jesus asked, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am, or I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You know, Devin, I think you're onto something here. Jesus' signature move would definitely be something like that. All he has to do is say, ego e me, uh, not lego my ego, but ego e me, and uh, people would fall to the ground. You're right, simple and effective. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Got an email from uh, Michael Ritzman, uh, that man who engages in that dark art known as accounting. He says, Captain Chris Rosebro, I expect from this, uh, I expect from these seeker-sensitive business model enthusiasts, uh, I expect better from them. Now, what is he referring to? Now, remember, uh, last week we uh, we reviewed the very first of the Star Trek. Uh, sermons uh, from Tommy Sparger. And after, just by the way, after uh, reviewing uh, his uh, his entry into the Star Trek sermon contest, we, we deemed that he was technically disqualified. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to send Tommy a, a copy of Christless Christianity, and we're going to send uh, Dr. Talkington a copy of Christless Christianity, not because they won the contest, but because we think it might help them in their ministries. But anyway, so in Tommy Sparger's uh, so-called uh, Star Trek sermon, boy, you have to really, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it was, movie review? But it wasn't even that. I mean, it was a, t- a total bait and switch. He, he actually talked down other churches. It was really interesting. So uh, Michael Rissman says, I expect better from these seeker-sensitive business model enthusiasts. One of the first rules of sales is never talk bad about your competition. You know, you're right. They actually teach us that in uh, in MBA-level courses as well, that it's not really a smart strategy to talk down or directly talk down your competition. Um, it creates ill will, you pointed out, and he says it usually turns away the customer. But throughout his movie review, Goat Herder Tommy Sparger repeatedly maligned, insulted, and jo- generally spoke bad about other churches, and he wonders why people are leaving. 
yeah, again, really bad form on his part. I would definitely say if if he's going to really want to commit himself to applying best business practices, uh, then he needs to apply that one and not be talking down other churches. Um, in uh, Ritzman, I think this uh, this he has a postscript here in the email, and it looks like it might be a dig on Deloach. Yeah, it is. Uh, but I'll read it anyway. So he says, P.S., what is a criminal lawyer? And uh, the answer is redundant. If you don't know what that means, <laughs> think about it and let it settle in. All right. Got an email from Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, who was chiming in on the Star Trek sermon. <laughs> Dear Chris, uh, well, now I've heard everything. The supposed Star Trek sermon from Tommy Sparger of North Point Church, Springfield, Missouri, was one of the most appalling things I have ever heard. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, what's funny is it says it's all standard fare here at Fighting for the Faith now. He says, for a supposedly seeker-sensitive church uh, where the great claim is this is evan- evangelism. That's right. This this The whole point of the seeker-driven movement or the seeker-sensitive movement is that they claim that the church service is evangelism. He says, but this sermon wasn't evangelistic at all. It, w- it was all about the church. The Star Trek title fared no better than the word of God. <laughs> Actually worse. He never got beyond the title sequence. That's correct. You know, so it, it, that's the fun part. You, that's a great point that the that the Star Trek title didn't do any better than the word of God. God's word really got mangled, too. So showing that it was nothing more than a transparent ploy to get people there. But who was the sermon actually aimed at? Those who were already coming to the church and had been for some time? So instead of a talk aiming to meet people's needs and using Star Trek as an illustration, we got a rant about how the people had to commit to the church. This isn't even trying to be evangelism, yet the excuse for the methods he uses is that it is evangelism. You know, um, Pastor Charmley, it's obvious that you suffer from... um, uh, logic i mean don't you know that you just need to reach out with your spirit man and uh, and let the spiritual realm inform you as to how this truly was nothing more than god-centered evangelism you see your logic and 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 the fact that you're just judging it based upon his words shows that you just don't see the spirit of what it is that he was doing I'm sorry, I said that with my tongue in my cheek, and it hurts. He says, uh, what is incredibly ironic is that Tommy Sparger presupposes Charles G. Finney's idea that the church has to constantly change methods in order to reach people. Yet it is the megachurch model that is the 40-year-old idea that is a dinosaur today. Is this church in financial trouble? Uh, This is a version of the old-fashioned tithing sermon. I hope that... A large number of people who came to North Point thinking that they would hear a relevant sermon based on Star Trek will leave in disgust at this man's silliness and never return. We can only hope. By the way, Springfield, Missouri does not have an unlimited pool of people to draw from. He says, what is it? Uh, as for the idea, as for this idea, right, you're, you're, com- you're <clears throat> as for this idea, right, you're converted now, go out and do stuff. A.W. Tozer had an experience with such an idea. Once he encountered a man who did not believe in going to church each week to hear the word of God preached. 
The man felt that once people were converted, they should immediately turn their full attention to winning others. A farmer, the man argued, uh, candles uh, his eggs once, the, once, not every week. As soon as the eggs have been candled, he crates them and ships them off to market. By the way, candles, candling eggs is an old-fashioned way of doing things. I'm sure, I'm sure they do something similar, but you, you look inside the egg to see what the what kind of, you know, through a light, you can kind of see what's going on in there. Anyway, Tozer found a serious flaw in the man's argument. Christ did not say to Peter, candle my eggs. He said, feed my sheep. Christians are not eggs to be candled, but sheep to be fed. Feeding sheep is not something you do once and for all. It's a loving act you repeatedly, regularly, as long as the sheep live. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct there. And what did Jesus say? He he, he felt bad for people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In fact, you know what? Tell you what. I'll just look that up in my computerized Bible without a shepherd. Here we go. Matthew chapter 9. Okay. Let me get some context here in my computerized Bible. Uh, verse 36 is the one that we are looking for. But it says this, and uh, starting at verse 35, it says, And Jesus went, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogue, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus has compassion on the crowd because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And you know what? We need to have compassion and pray for the people who are attending these seeker-driven churches who think that this is a great thing because in reality, they too are sheep without a shepherd because the shepherd refuses to feed them God's word. Yesterday's sermon from Dr. Talkington was a wretched example of that. All right. Here's what we're going to do. Okay. We're going to take our first break just a smidge early. And when we come back, I've got an email from uh, Chick 1 and Chick 3 on baptism. Now, uh, we're going to have to get to this, and I want to be able to do it without uh, taking a break. And then when we're done with their email regarding baptism, we're, we've got... Patricia King news about supernatural rain, uh, so you don't want to miss it. So stay tuned. We got all kinds of good stuff going on today here at Fighting for the Faith. Okay, so want to remind you if you would like to email me, you can at um, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I usually say yes. The name there is Chris Rosebro. Or. You can follow me on Twitter and receive our sub, uh, secret subversive microblogging tweets there on Twitter. The name is Pirate Christian there. Tell you what, we'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's, no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way.
We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning. This program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. How is that possible? Well, if your pastor's not giving you the goods, that means not doing his job or using a little Star Trek lingo here, uh, not uh, fulfilling his prime directive. <laughs> Yeah, I, I knew I was relevant somehow. Um, yeah, that's the thing about being nerdy. If, you, if you're into Star Trek and you're a Star Trek nerd like myself, um, I'm so nerdy. Me and my high school buddies, we used to make our own Star Trek episodes. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> amazing what you could do with plywood and some Christmas tree lights. Anyway, um, <laughs> so eventually, you know, if you're into something like that, you know, you're for a moment you sound relevant. Um, so the prime directive of any pastor is to preach the word and to preach Christ and him crucified from every passage of scripture. Believe it or not, it can be done. In fact, it should be done. Um, and, uh, if, <laughs> if he's not doing that, uh, he's not fulfilling his prime directive. And, uh, at which point listening to this program would constantly remind you of that little, um, major thing that's missing and could then lead to consternation or dissatisfaction on your part, whereby you would say, you know, why do I keep going to this church when the only thing he does is spend 45 minutes speaking into the wind, talking into the air, telling me nothing. So got to warn you there. want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to pay our bills so that we can continue to bring you Fighting for the Faith. It's a symbiotic relationship of sorts. And so if you would like to partner with us and help us out financially so that we can continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you, you can visit fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donation buttons there. It makes it possible for you to uh, basically process your gift via online secure, uh, well, it's, it's online and it's secure. 
I, I, I'm still trying to figure out a way to describe this right. Anyway, or you can do it the, the traditional way, and that would be to make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. Got an email here from Chick1 and Chick3, which is a follow-up to the email that I responded to not too long ago, which I think was an email that was a follow-up to another email. So this chain here of baptismal emails is now being extended. And I want to warn you ahead of time, this answering this email will lead into a, um, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, it will definitely lead into a long discussion, a biblical discussion, on a topic called the means of grace. Now, I don't know if you, well, let me put it this way. When I was an evangelical, I didn't know nothing about the means of grace. The means of what? Never heard of it. And it's not like if if I were to go to my computerized Bible right now and type in means of grace, it would come back going, eh, no, it's not a term that appears in Scripture. However, it is a biblical teaching, and we'll explain that here in a second. So launching into this email from Chick 1 and Chick 3, I read, dude. (laughs) <laughs> she says, I don't care where you live. You'll always be dude. Thank you for taking the time uh, that you did to talk about baptism. Your dangerous and radical idea about baptism makes so much sense biblically. The sinner's prayer never sounded right to me. And your explanation about how there can be uh, problems with the level of sincerity on the part of the sinner saying this prayer is spot on. This puts the act of salvation on the person's shoulder instead of, of with God where it belongs. God saves us. We can't save ourselves. When we receive this wonderful gift of salvation, we should be immediately baptized so we get, uh, so we get to what we consider to be the dangerous and radical view of baptism. Now back to the example of our sister. She was baptized as an infant. Uh, she can now say, according to your own words, that she can look back on her baptism as, as assurance of her salvation. Um, well, if she doesn't have faith, then it, it, she's got objective but not subjective justification. That's a different story. So she thinks that she's saved because of her baptism. Yeesh. So she can continue living her life all the while believing that she is saved when she is headed straight to hell. Well, see, this is a problem. She doesn't have faith. She's not repentant. And she basically considers her baptism to be a license to sin, which that's that's not something that people do in faith. It's something that they do in rebellion. You know, you don't turn the gospel into a license to sin. Anyway, so um, so this this is uh, that is dangerous and radical. And you accuse me of. You accuse so many preachers of doing the exact same thing, leading their congregation to believing false teaching, thinking they are saved, and all the while they are being led to hell. Telling someone like my sister that she can look back on her baptism is radical and dangerous. Now, Pam, I, I would say you can, in, a, in the right context, have her look back at her baptism. But at this point, your, um, your sister doesn't need to be pointed back to her baptism. Uh, she needs to have uh, Moses visit her. And uh, you can do that for Moses, luckily, because uh, you know he came down the mountain with the tablets with the ten the, the ten commandments on them. Uh, the the word that your sister needs to be focused on right now is God's law and her un- unrepentance and her rebellion and outright sin against God. This is not the behavior of somebody who 
has faith in Christ. Why? There's no remorse. There's no repentance. There's nothing there. So what you need to do is preach the law to her and preach it until it absolutely obliterates and destroys her. Now, I know that sounds cruel, uh, but that's really what needs to happen. She needs to be brought back to repentance. And should the Holy Spirit work repentance in her and contrition and sorrow for her sins, then, then point her back to her baptism. Okay? She doesn't need to be rebaptized. Okay? But now, when she's, if she, if God grants her repentance, and uh, you know rekindles that faith so to speak you can point her back to that baptism and it's something that's there for her baptism is only a benefit to those who have faith so you know i just want to point that out okay anyway we understand uh, what you're saying about getting out of uh, out of the first century and seeing uh, out of the first century and seeing how other christians thought in previous centuries our problem is is that you seem to be putting the writing of the early church fathers on the same level as scripture now that's a good point now i'll say this um, if I haven't made the point, I'll make it now and will continue making it. And that is, is that we, whenever we read the church fathers, we must always understand that their writings are not authoritative and binding the same way that scripture is. And that every single church father is guilty in one way or another of being slightly off. So you always have to compare what the church fathers say to scripture and you never read the scriptures through the church fathers. Does that make sense? So just the same way you don't listen to this show, uh, uh, you know, you don't listen to the Bible through the show, but you compare what, uh, you compare what I say to the Bible. That's the right way to do it. Now, the reason I brought the church fathers up is because historically though, it serves a purpose. And the purpose is this. It goes back to the fact that the current predominant view of baptism that's running around American evangelicalism, and I would even say in revivalistic circles in Great Britain and other parts of the world, um, is the idea that the purpose of baptism is for you to let the world know that you've made a decision for Jesus. Okay, uh, This is ridiculous uh, on its face in a lot of different ways. Okay, we've talked about it before. Just let me beat up on it again for a moment, even though I know that it could potentially cause somebody to send me an upset email. Um, number one, the Bible nowhere says anything of the sort. Number two, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, if the purpose of baptism is to show the world that you've made a decision for Jesus, then how come they don't have bleachers set up at church and invite the world to come watch you being dunked? Just a simple question. Anyway, so uh, the reason I brought up the church fathers is because what's interesting, though, is that when you look at the early church, the early church, their view of baptism is that it imparted the very things that the scripture says that it imparts. Okay, so um, and so there when you look at what the early church was doing with baptism, it's clear they thought that baptism in your, our baptisms, our sins are forgiven. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. Our hearts are circumcised by the hands of Christ. That it's God's working. Okay, Augustine constantly referred to baptism as a regenerative bath. Just want to point that out. So when we point when when I point out the church fathers, it's it's good to look back and go, okay, well, are they? Is their view consistent with Scripture? And when you look at the earliest Christian church, not only is their view consistent with Scripture. 
uh, they further elucidate on this idea. They really believe that baptism delivered something and that it was God's work. Okay, the writings of their church fathers is not inspired. I agree. It's not inerrant. I agree. And it's not on the same level as scripture. I agree. If you uh, never read your Bible before, you didn't know anything before being saved and started reading your Bible and read every verse on baptism, do you think you would come to the conclusion to go around and baptize babies? (laughs) Yes, actually, I would. Anyway. Uh, do you, don't you don't think so? You would come to the conclusion that you that people must repent and be baptized. You are right. Scripture is very clear. But because you have it in your mind that infants should be baptized and re, and read what others say, early Christians, you come to a different conclusion. There is an order to it. Let's go over this again with you. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> I'm being I'm being told to here. Uh, People are saved because of God's mercy and grace. Yes. The way he does this is through faith. Yes. He gives faith. He gives us the faith. Yes. What do we do with this faith? Now, stop. Okay. Chick one and chick three. Listen carefully. I'm going to read your order and I'm going to point something out to you. You're missing something here. Okay. People are saved because of God's mercy and grace. I would say absolutely. In fact, I would even add on to that. Yeah, it says in Scripture, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. And he does this through faith. Correct. Faith is a gift from God. Okay? He gives us the faith. Correct. God is the one who gives us faith. I would even add to it something a little bit even more scandalous. God is the one who gives us faith and repentance. Okay? It, that repentance and faith are God's work. Now, why would I say that? Well, because the scriptures actually teach it. You have to look for it, but it's there. Let me give you an example. Jesus, in describing repentance, I think it's in Luke chapter 10. Let me make sure I'm not sending you guys in the wrong place. Hang on a second here. Uh, Luke 10. Nope, that's not it. <laughs> Hold on a second here. Let me make sure I've got this right lost sheep okay do word search there we go oh it's matthew chapter 10 here we go okay matt 10 okay no that's not it either um hold on a second here just doing a little bit of work here to find it it's a parable of the lost sheep, okay? Um, there we go. It's Luke 15. Found it, finally. Whew. Tells you that I'm thinking about this. Okay, Luke 15, okay? Let me read to you two parables that describe repentance. You ready? Uh, Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 3. He says, yeah, Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And you now you can work with me here for a second. Where was the when did the lost sheep repent in the story? 
think about it for a second. You're going to go, um, did it? Yeah, it did. You want to know what repentance looks like? It looks like when the shepherd comes and picks you up and scoops you up and puts them on his shoulders and carries you back. And he carries you back. That's what repentance looks like. Or how about this one? Or what woman having 10 coins, if she loses one, uh, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. So I tell you is the same joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, the coin is the one who repented. How did the coin repent? Oh, it was found. Okay, just want to point that out to you. So, by the way, repentance and faith are a gift from God. Now, coming back to you, chick one and chick three. Let me go review this real quick. People are saved because of God's mercy and grace. Check. The way he does this is through faith. Check. He gives us the faith. Check. Now, what's missing Here's what's missing. How does he give us faith? That's what's missing in your formula here. How does God give us faith? Okay, think about it for a second. Does God give us faith when we go up into the mountains and we look at a sunset? No, because pagans were doing that for centuries, for millennia. And the religions that they concocted after vi after visiting mountains and looking at sunsets looked nothing like Christianity because the gospel is not found in the sunset. So how does God give us faith? The answer to the question biblically is the, the missing doctrine here is called the means of grace. Okay, Now, Lutherans... When we talk about the means of grace, we talk about two things, God's word and the sacraments. And what do we mean by that? Uh, sacraments would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. So what is a means of grace? A means of grace, think of it this way. A means of grace is earthly matter that has, that is at, that is basically has God's word added to it that. God uses to deliver promises that he's given. Okay. Now you're thinking what? I've never heard of this before. Yeah, I know because unfortunately American revivalism doesn't understand the means of grace at all. They just somehow think that, um, I don't know how that, you know, I think they think that you spiritually reach out to God. They believe that you make a decision, but the reality is, is that God is the one who comes to us and God is the one who gives us faith. So the question is by what means does God use to give us faith? Answer biblically are two things, word and sacrament. Don't believe me. Work with me for a second. Okay. I want to work with you just on a, for a second on the whole idea of the means of grace. The theologians through the centuries have referred to it by a Latin term. It's called verbum visibali or visibly, okay, uh, basically meaning the visible word, okay? And the idea is, is that, again, it's physical matter that God has attached promises to. Now, believe it or not, you already do believe in a means of grace. Whether you know it or not, you actually do. If you're a Christian, you do. What is that thing that you believe? Huh. Well, I'm glad you asked the question. The answer is the blood of Christ. Okay. Think about it. Jesus's actual physical 
RH typable blood propitiated God's wrath, right? And it saves you, okay? Think about it. It's not all that hard to get. So so we're not talking about spiritualized blood here. We're talking about the very blood that Jesus shed on the cross. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was hanging naked after being scourged on a Roman cross between two thieves, and he was bleeding like a sieve. He was bleeding everywhere. And that blood, that earthly blood that had white blood cells, that had red blood cells, that had platelets and hemoglobin and everything that makes up blood, that physical blood was literally propitiating God's wrath, atoning for your sins, purchasing you, okay? Let me give you some backup verses on this, all right? Uh, All right, so uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 28, okay? It says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How did God obtain his church? Uh, Through his own blood, through the blood of Christ, okay? Um, We read... In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by uh, him from the wrath of God. Okay. Or we can read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his Blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay? So what what happened is that Jesus' physical blood, it's just blood, right? But what's attached to it is God's word and the promise of the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus' physical blood literally, literally purchased you. It was earthly matter that worked an amazing, eternal miracle. Okay? Now... Can blood by itself do such great things? No, it can't. Okay? But this is blood that was promised. This is blood that the Word of God tells us was propitiating the wrath of God and atoning for our sins and purchasing us. Okay? So you do believe in means of grace. Now let me give you another example of the means of grace. All right? Now this one's a little bit, well... It's a little earthy, so stick with me for a second while I kind of flesh this one out, okay? And it's found in John chapter 9, okay? Wonderful story in John chapter 9. We read, starting at verse 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, well, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva 
And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, this is another example of the means of grace. Jesus restored this man's sight, and the means of grace was the physical mud that he made with his saliva to restore his eyesight. Now, quick question. Um, is this something that we should be doing today? Do we, if, if you see a blind person, are we to go out and, and hunk a loogie into the dirt and make mud in order to heal the person, in order to bring them eyesight? Uh, no. Okay? There's no promise in Scripture that if we do that, he'll, that, pe- that blind people will be able to see. Mud is... A saliva-filled mud is not generally considered to be a hygienic way of restoring people's eyesight anyway. So what was the mud? The mud was a means of grace. Jesus could have said to the blind man, see, and he would have seen. How would he have seen? Through the means of Jesus' words. If Jesus said, see, he would have seen. So the word of God would have come to him. And he would have seen. In this particular case, the word of God came to the man via the mud or the promise. So the means was the mud. Now, now that you kind of got the idea here, the question is, how does God bring us faith? Answer, according to the scripture, two ways. Word and sacrament. And specifically, we'll say baptism. And believe it or not, There is an account in the scriptures of somebody who had faith. They were regenerated, repented, and were given faith in baptism. The funny thing, though, is it's not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Okay, let me give you, let me bring it up to speed here. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman the leper. Let me read it to you. Okay, ready? Here we go. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Interesting that he gave victory to Syria through a pagan. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She, had to, she said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, well, go, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, quote, when the letter reaches, when this letter reaches you, know that I am, uh, that I am sent to you, Naaman, my servant, that you might cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? 
Only consider and see now he is seeking to quarrel with me. So the king of Israel thought that basically this was some kind of a ruse to pick a fight to start a war. Okay, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. Okay, now listen. At that moment, by the way, the Jordan River by itself has no leper healing qualities in fact i was reading a a story in one of the israeli papers the other day about the pollution in the river jordan right now it's it's really really bad it's pretty much a muddy muddy cesspool Uh, anyway so the jordan river has no healing properties of its own but at this at this moment now through the prophet God's word is now attached specifically to the Jordan River, not any other water body of water. And if Naaman goes and dips in the Jordan seven times, his leprosy will be cured. Sounds preposterous, doesn't it? And that's exactly how Naaman took it. Okay? Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman was expecting a spiritual healing, not a a healing that involved dunking himself in some water. He wanted the prophet to come out and wave his hands and go, right? Naaman, continuing in his rant, says, Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Answer, no, you couldn't wash in them and be clean because God's word is not attached to the Arbana or the Parfar rivers in order to, clean, to cleanse you. It is only God's word is only attached to the Jordan in this case. So he turned and he went away in a rage does it sound like a man who has faith to you who trusts in the one true god and believes him in his word no he's a pagan and he's upset by this idea that the prophet wants him to do something so ridiculously preposterous as going and dunking himself in a river everybody knows that lepers are never he cured by dunking in a river but his servants came near to um, Naaman and said to him my father it's a great word that the prophet has spoken to you will you not do it has he actually said to you wash and be clean what is the servant doing at this point the servant here is reminding Naaman of the word of the Lord through the prophet The prophet said, wash and you'll be clean. He's reminding him of God's word. 
So Naaman went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. How can water do such great things? It can't. But only that water which is attached to God's word. So, but it doesn't stop there. Keep in mind, Naaman goes into the Jordan as a leper and a pagan. But he comes out healed of his leprosy and a repentant believer in the one true God. Listen to the rest of the story. So then Naaman, he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. That was Elisha. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, If not, then please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. Why was he worried about that? He, listen, Naaman went into the Jordan River as a pagan, and he came out a believer. Where did that faith come from? It didn't come from within him because faith, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, is a gift from God. God, via the means of the river Jordan, healed him of his leprosy and gave him the gift of faith. And he comes out a fully repentant and believing believer with faith. Where was the word of God? It was in the water. Means of grace. We're going to take our second break. We'll come back. We'll wrap this up and then move on to uh, the great news coming out of Patricia King regarding spiritual rain. I know what I've just said is you've probably never heard this teaching before, but I challenge you. Look at it in the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ And when you look at all the promises associated with baptism, our sins are forgiven. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. I'm telling you, the missing thing for you, uh, Chick 1 and Chick 3, is understanding that baptism itself is a means by which God forgives sins and works faith. Just the same way he worked faith in Naaman the leper. All right, we'll be right back. If you would like to email me, 
you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook or be my friend there, my name's Chris Roseboro. Ask to be my friend. I just probably will say yes. And if you'd like to receive our subversive microblogging tweets via Twitter, you can follow me there. Name is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith, our number two, number dos. We're in the middle of discussing something called the means of grace, a forgotten theological doctrine and category within American evangelicalism, but I'm telling you, very well known in the ancient church, very well known among Reformed and uh, Reformation circles like the uh, Lutherans. Uh, so anyway, let me let me kind of wrap this up, put a little tiny bow on it, and uh, we'll you know we'll go from there. And um, let let's I want to do something here. Repent and be baptized, everyone, even the words and witness. Okay, for you and for your children. There it is. All right, hang on a second here. I just want to look something up in the Greek. 
Technos. Okay. An offspring, human, child, children in general. Okay. All right. So, chick one, chick three. Okay, the missing ingredient here in your email, okay, is the idea that baptism is a means of grace. Now, after reading the story of Naaman the leper, okay, we can come back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. Why would we do that? Because now it be- this all of a sudden begins to make sense. If you understand that baptism is a means of grace, that means that it delivers the thing that God promises it will deliver, uh, then all of a sudden it takes on a completely, completely different meaning altogether. It's see now. Here's the deal. I'll tell you this: when it comes to salvation, God is is pretty sloppy. And what I mean by that is this: um, when uh, there are times when people are saved and receive the uh, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and are then baptized. There are times that they repent and then are baptized and then they receive the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the, the technical term we use in, in theological circles is the, what's called the order salutis. Anyway, when it comes to, when you look biblically how this all plays out, I'm telling you, it's God is just really, really sloppy. Okay. And so there are times when people hear the word of the gospel and they're baptized and uh, and they, they receive faith when they hear the gospel and and their baptism they should be baptized immediately so that they don't pull, you know pull the two apart uh, but there are times when people are baptized and that's how they're saved in the case of Naaman the leper where was the word of God it was in the Jordan River okay who was the one who saved him God was who was the one who healed him God did how did he do it through the means of the Jordan River where God's word was attached you know at that moment okay. So when we understand that Naaman went in a pagan, came out a believer, a repentant believer, now we can understand what Peter says this in uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this, it now baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? Baptism now saves you. That's what Scripture says. There's actually a verse in Scripture in the Bible that says that baptism saves you. That's the the verbal construction there. Baptism now saves you. How? Because in baptism are all these amazing promises. Baptism isn't water by itself. As if water can save a person. It's baptism. It's water connected to the word of God. And what do we learn from God's word? Acts chapter 2 verse 38. We learn that in our baptisms, our sins are forgiven. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 4. We learn that we're baptized. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're clothed with Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. Our hearts are are circumcised by the hands of Christ in our baptism, Colossians 2, 11 and 12. So then, if baptism does this, it saves somebody? 1 Peter three twenty one says that baptism saves. 
I know a lot of reform guys don't like it, but that's what it says. And we have an example of it doing that in Naaman the leper. Then the question comes down to, who is it for? Who is baptism for? And now earlier, Chick 1 and Chick 3, you asked me, if I, under, if I read all the passages of Scripture, who would I think it applies to what I think it applies to children? My answer was absolutely yes. And I came to this position kicking and screaming because of my reading and studying of Scriptures. Okay? Coming back to Acts chapter 2, uh, we read, okay, verse... 37. Now, when they heard this, this is Peter's preaching, everyone was cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. It's for you. It's for your children and for everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Baptism is a means of grace. It is a means by which God delivers faith. God delivers the forgiveness of sins and does these amazing things. And as 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21 says, baptism now saves you. How? Because it's a means of grace. Name in the leper. That's the way to think of it. So, the you know, I'm going to leave you with that, okay? So, what and what's, a, what's the other normative means of grace? The one we would all agree on, if you think about it, is Romans chapter 10, 17. says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And you say, well, wait a second. It says faith comes through the hearing of the word of Christ. Understand the word of Christ is connected to the waters of baptism, which is what makes it a regenerative bath, as Augustine constantly referred to it. So what do I believe? I believe the scriptures teach that baptism is a means of grace and it delivers the very things that it says, and the Apostle Peter says that baptism saves you, and we have an example of baptismal regeneration in the Old Testament. So that's the missing. that was the missing thing in your chain chick one and chick three and i hope that helps and i hope nobody takes me outside the city walls and throws rocks at me until i stop breathing because i understand the american ear this just sounds ridiculously foreign and that's what i consider to be an absolute tragedy because this through christian history this was not a foreign doctrine this was the standard doctrine well, I would say it was debated, but people understood baptism to be a means of grace. Anyway, so there you have it. Who needs to be baptized? Every single sinner. <laughs> yeah, they need they need to hear the gospel. They need to be baptized. And so what do we do as Christians? We bring our children to the waters of baptism. We don't dedicate them because it's not like we're waiting for them to make a decision because you couldn't make you didn't even make a decision for God. God chose you anyway and he gave you faith. You bring them to the waters of baptism and you trust in the word of Christ and you catechize them into the faith. They're baptized into the faith. And so you parents are responsible to teach them. Again, I understand how crazy and ridiculously foreign this sounds. 
I was once uh, evangelical who believed that baptism was something I did to show the world that I made a decision. All right, switching gears here. Uh, Patricia King apparently is now experiencing supernatural rain. Um, and our question regarding her is, um, um, do we have to get another channel on the, uh, on our cable stations? And, you know, cause if it can, if you can have supernatural rain, you may also be able to have supernatural tornadoes, ice storms, you know, bad weather and other things. But, um, without any further ado, here's Patricia King talking about this incredible new outpouring of supernatural rain. In a moment, I'm going to pray for you to have the windows of heaven opened up over your life to pour out a downpour of blessings upon you and your household. And I believe the Lord has shown me prophetically that there are going to be regions of people that are going to come into a whole new new wave of revival. I've been getting supernatural raindrops fall on me for a number of months now. In fact, almost in every meeting I go in, I feel them. Now, Patricia, are you, are you sure that that's supernatural raindrops? No, it's possible that maybe you were just sitting on the front row while one of your friends was preaching and they were spitting on you. Just a, you know, just a, a, another theory or hypothesis I'm working on. It's like I physically feel the raindrops. They come on me, but when I go to touch my skin, the skin's not wet. And it just keeps happening all the time. Even sometimes... It- Have you seen a doctor for this problem? my home when I'm not even, you know, focused on the Lord. I might be just getting dinner ready and all of a sudden I feel the raindrops and it's a reminder. God speaks in languages other than English or the language that you might know. He speaks uh, different languages, even the language of signs and wonders. And some that wow, I did not know that signs and wonders was a language. Uh, can you prove it from the Bible? Give us a passage. You know, anything there? Sometimes he'll give us a sign to call us to attention uh-huh. to what he wants to do. Right. I believe the Lord wants to pour out rain. It's- okay, we got to be careful here. We, if uh, You know what? I think I need to uh, consider offering in the Pirate Christian Radio store spiritual umbrellas that you can use if you happen to get spiritually rained on. And again, you know, this this is very disturbing because, I mean, again, if there can be spiritual rain, there could be spiritual rain showers, spiritual thunder and lightning. There could be even spiritual snowstorms and ice and sleet that go along with it. You know, yes, this just opens up a whole new spiritual can of worms. It says in Deuteronomy 28:12, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse the heavens to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the works of your hand. And um that rain referred to in Deuteronomy 28 um that would be you know rain y- you know r- the the you know when the clouds have precipitation in it and they let the preci- and pre- precipitation go, and it comes down as little raindrops. Uh, Deuteronomy 28 is actually referring to r- just rain. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Rain is oftentimes a sign of revival, but it's a sign of prosperity. If there's no rain... What? There's no harvest. And so we... Boy, that sounds so deep, doesn't it? 
You know, if it wasn't for Patricia King, we'd never laugh around here. Need the rain. The rain brings refreshment. That's why it's it's oftentimes a symbol of revival. It is a a refreshment that comes to you by the Spirit. Uh-huh. Rain also speaks of the heavens, heaven's blessings opening up over your life and being poured down upon you. I de- Where does it say that in the scriptures, Patricia? Decree over you that you are getting ready to have the rain of God's blessing. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. Please don't. In Acts chapter 2, it says in verse 17, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall shall dream dreams. Uh, by the way, Patricia, you're quoting uh, the Apostle Peter's great Pentecost sermon, and uh, that really was about Christ. And after the people heard his sermon, they uh, were cut to the quick and repented of their sins. Um, you pulling out the signs and wonders part and the whole word pouring doesn't prove your point about supernatural rain at all. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the, the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a revival scripture. It's talking about the outpouring, the outpouring of the spirit upon us. When we were recently... A revival scripture? Uh, That was the sermon kickoff for the church. In Hawaii, I was getting all this supernatural raindrops were falling on me. And I had this sense. Uh, By the way, this is the same woman who uh, apparently, you know, bird feathers miraculously fall from the sky. And they're supposedly angels' feathers. And uh, and they have gold dust and... um, and gem, you know, and diamond, sapphires, uh, miracles, too. That was always easy to prove as a sham. Now, how do you disprove supernatural rain? Again, maybe she's suffering from a skin condition. God was going to visit um, Hawaii with a refreshment in the spirit. And that's why we're going back to Hawaii for let it rain. Those of you living in Hawaii, uh, spiritual hurricane warnings should probably be posted uh, this could be a Category 5 spiritual rain uh, hurricane. Definitely want to avoid it. Uh, it could cause you to be spiritually killed. They're hosting a conference on, on Friday, June the 19th. South- yeah, the name of it is uh, Let It Rain. It's called a Revivrance. That's what it says on their website. It says, Join Patricia King in Hawaii. Let It Rain Revivrance. June 19th and 20th. Saturday, June the 20th, called Let It Rain in Hawaii. You can find more information about that um, online or in this emailer. But um, I'm so excited about it. I, I, I just know that God has something. He's going to rain down miracles, signs, wonders, the prophetic. Let it rain, let it rain, let it rain in Hawaii. Maybe I'll see a lot of you there. But for everyone, I want to pray for the blessing of the rain to fall upon you in your house right now. I want it to fall in your bank accounts. I want. I don't want to have to dry everything out, Patricia. <sighs> I want it to fall on your physical body as far as the rain of heaven's health and wholeness falling upon your body, falling upon your children, falling upon your relationships. Your uh, Patricia, did you just just a simple question? 
did you ever use any hard narcotics when you were a teenager in in college? Fry a few brain cells? Just wondering. Marriages. Let's ask God to open the heaven right now and pour out the rain of revival. So in the name of Jesus Christ, Father, I'm asking right now, whoa, that you would... <laughs> Whoa! Oh, she's got a download. It came. A download just came. Open up the heavens. Open up the heavens and pour out a blessing for us that we cannot contain. Yeah. I uh-huh. pray, Lord God, that you would pour out the rain of blessing upon each one watching right now, upon their 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 children, their marriages, uh-huh. their families, their thank relationship, you, you, yes. their relationship with you, Lord God. Pour out refreshment. Do you really think that your God hears you? Because the God you believe in is not really the God of the Bible. Funny enough, you read the Bible, but you don't know nothing about the God of the Bible. You miss the whole Jesus thing. All you focus in, in focus in and target in on are signs and wonders, and you miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. You miss Jesus Christ himself. Oh, boy. Upon them, pour out, pour out rain upon the word that they are reading. Pour out rain upon their bank accounts. Pour out rain upon their households. Pour out rain upon their churches, upon their, upon their regions. We want revival, Father. And so let the rain come. And I just sense really strongly that... Yeah, you might want to board up your house. Um, yeah, because when this rain hurricane hits... Yeah, I could take the roof off. But a number of you are actually going to start to get this rain sign. Uh-huh. You're going to start to get it. So, so any of you listeners to Fighting for the Faith, if you get a rain sign, I, email me. I'd like to hear about it. In the name of Jesus, I proclaim the rain of the Holy Spirit upon you. In Jesus' name. You know what's really funny, uh, Patricia, is you kind of miss the whole point of what the Holy Spirit's doing you know, theologically, a good way to describe the work of the Holy Spirit is that he's the PR guy for Jesus. Um, what does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts the world of sin and unbelief, and he's always pointing people to Christ and his redemptive work. Um, I do detect that you've completely missed the whole point of Scripture, and as a result of it, this stuff is just ridiculous. But, I mean, what a better place. What a, What could... who? What could be a nicer place to uh, have a reviverance than in, 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 in Milani, Hawaii? I mean, two days, two days at this Let It Rain conference, two days of ridiculousness, and then you can hit the beach and, and do some surfing. You know, that just sounds like such a nice place to, to have a conference. Ugh. All right. Now, due to time constraints here... I'll have to get to my Taliban story tomorrow, my churchgoers uh, and spiritual maturity, and Exodus 10 tomorrow, because I spent a little bit more time on the means of grace than I had anticipated. But it needed to be done, because you know, I wanted to make sure you guys didn't think I was just inventing this stuff. And if you don't believe me, go back and read the Reformers and read the, what the church fathers write about baptism. They understood the, the means of grace and what they called the visible word. All right, we're going to switch gears one last time, and we're going to go into our sermon review now. That's right. The theme from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Not just ugly, it's really, really... Ugly. 
Today's sermon review is from the Journey Church, a casual contemporary Christian church in New York City. They're a multi-site church, and the name of their just-completed sermon series is called From Stress to Rest. That's right. From Stress to Rest. In fact, the sermon graphic, which I think will end up over at the Museum of Idolatry, um... It shows an iPhone, and it says, from stress to the rest, and my future, my finances, my job, my faith, and my sex life. Yeah, that's right. You can find this at uh, www.journeymetro.com if you'd like to get more details on going from stress to rest. And ironically, ironically, the sermon that we're going to be listening to could have been one of the contenders for our um, Easter worst sermon, East, worst Easter sermon of 2009. Unfortunately, you know, I wasn't aware of this. Otherwise, I think they might have been a contender. And the sermon we're going to be listening to, from stress to rest, happened to also be the um, sermon that was preached on Easter Sunday. Isn't that great? I mean, so you're going to hear just some Christ-exalting resurrection power, Jesus raised from the dead, crucified for our sins kind of preaching here. Well, we can hope. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Nelson from the Journey Church in New York City. His Easter sermon entitled, From Stress to Rest. Well, happy Easter, everybody, and it's great to see you today, and really glad that you're here. We're kicking off a brand new series today called From Stress to Rest. But before I get to that, let me say hello to everybody who's joining us in Jersey City, everybody in Brooklyn, everybody here on the Upper West Side, and let's give a big hand for our brand new location in Queens. Let's give these guys a big hand. They're having their very first monthly service today, and so we're really excited about that. They will do monthly services throughout the uh, summer and then launch uh, weekly services this fall. So we're really excited about what's going on with Journey Queens, but excited about today as well. Well, and it's Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. And it hit me today that maybe some of you came here today because perhaps you need a resurrection in your life. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. We're off to a bad start here. Hang on a second. I just have to do this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That Sorry, that's not what the resurrection was about. It's not about whether or not you need a resurrection in your life. Oh man, I why do I feel like this is just good? Don't worry. We'll have an emergency gospel sermon at the end of this uh as part of today's uh, uh podcast download for those of you who uh subscribe via iTunes cuz we'll need it after this. Let me play that again cuz that was just really bad. Here we go. Excited about today as well. And it's Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. And it hit me today that maybe some of you came here today because perhaps you need a resurrection in your life. Maybe as you've been examining your life this year, you realize you need a resurrection in your career. Or maybe you... <sighs> Hang on. Sorry. That just... Uh... You say, I need a resurrection when it comes to my marriage. Uh, no, that is not how we do this or in my dating life, or maybe you need a resurrection in your finances. Well, oh, man. Um, Pastor Nelson. Um, this is Pastor Nelson, seriously. Um, dude, 
You don't do this with the resurrection of Christ. You proclaim Christ and him crucified and resurrected from the dead for our justification, for the forgiveness of our sins. You completely miss the entire point of Easter. We need a resurrection in our finances. We need a resurrection in our career. You've just allegorized scripture and Christ's resurrection. Well, if so, you picked a great day to join us because we're going to talk today about how God wants to move us from stress to rest, about how God wants to take us from the suffering of Good Friday to the celebration of Easter Sunday. Oh, man. No, no, no. Oh, this is awful. This is just, I'm, I'm probably going to blow a gasket. And you know, the reality is we all get stressed from time to time. We all need God's power in our life and the same power. That- so the resurrection was about God making my life less stressful. You have got to be kidding me. That raised Christ from the dead 2,000 years ago is the power that God offers us today. And, you know, every once in a while, even pastors get stressed. And so uh, in preparation... So the whole point of the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So apparently death is like the ultimate form of stress and proof positive that Christ, that God is all about helping you overcome stress. Well, Jesus rose from the grave, therefore proving that God really wants to make your life peaceful. Uh, Death is stress. And yeah, man, for the series, I went in this past week and I had a stress test done. And let's just say it didn't turn out exactly like I hoped. So stress has been called America's number one disease. And we all deal with stress. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. In fact, stress has been called America's number one disease. Um, Pastor Nelson, I just want to point this out to you. Um, You don't get to decide based upon polls what America's number one disease is. uh, Because the people who took that poll about whatever, you know, where stress is, you know, as far as stress being America's number one disease, um, they were obviously unaware of a more important problem. The more important problem being that all of us are by nature sinners. That's the number one disease that all people, and not just Americans, suffer from, is the fact that we are born sinful in in rebellion to God, and Jesus Christ, and God definitively dealt with this disease by dying on the cross to propitiate God's wrath, atone for our sins, purchase us with his blood, and he rose victorious from the grave for our, for our justification. He didn't rise to make my life here less stressful, though. Oh, man. There's a very famous passage in Scripture where Jesus talked about how he will move us from stress to rest when we trust him with our lives. So let's go to that passage, if you will. Find your message notes. It's from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29. All right, hang on a second here. We're going to be pulling this up. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. So apparently uh, this is all about stress release. A relief. Hang on. Let's, let's see what he's got to say. It's also up here on the screen. But follow along. Let's look at what Jesus said. Jesus said this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. So look, if you're stressed out. 
Uh, um, Pastor Nelson, um, are you aware that he's not really talking about stress there? He's talking about something else. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 11, starting at verse 20, because context, context, context are the three important rules of biblical interpretation. In fact, most problems that are solved in somebody who's scripture twisting like you just did, Pastor Nelson, uh, could be completely obliterated if people would just read their Bibles in context. Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 20, we read, Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, uh, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." So is Jesus here at this moment, all of a sudden, out of the blue, deciding to offer himself as the ultimate solution for stress? Was that the big burning problem that was facing the Jews who were listening to his message as he preached this there in uh, Judea? No. Uh, The big burning issue was they were burdened with sin and they were burdened with law-keeping, not stress. And what does Jesus offer them? Salvation by grace through faith alone in him. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says that he will, that he's gentle and lowly and will find rest for our souls. Jesus isn't offering temporary stress relief. He's offering us eternal life free as a gift. By faith in him. Oh, boy. Out today, if you need a resurrection today, you can come to Jesus and he will give it to you. He will take you from the place. Oh, man, that's so hard to listen to. Place of stress to a place of rest. And this verse tells us a couple of things that are really important. Number one, the Bible never promises that we're going to have a stress-free life. In fact, Jesus is very clear that sometimes life can be tiring. Life is going to wear you out. It's going to stress you out from time to time. In fact, you do not want a stress-free life. Because the only people who are stress-free are those in the cemetery. And none of us really want that. And so Jesus says that you're going to have stress in life. But... If you trust him with all of your life, you can find rest in this life. If I trust him with all of my life, what does that sentence mean? And, uh, man, that sounds mysteriously like he's trying to smuggle in the law 
and disguise it as the gospel. You can't find peace in this life. And listen, it's not unchristian to be stressed out. No less of a Christian than the Apostle Paul found himself one time in a very stressful situation. I'll put that verse for you next in your notes. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 says, When we arrived, Paul talking, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. Outside there was conflict from every direction. Hold your finger right there. Have you ever been in that situation? You, you, you dread going to the office because there's conflict in every direction? You know, so this guy's delivering this sermon with the same cadence as an infomercial pitch man. Are you following me, camera guy? Sham, wow. Are you dread coming home because there's conflict in every direction? Are you dread going back home at Christmas time because... This sounds like an infomercial. I think this guy's peddling the infomercial gospel. Plus there's conflict in every direction, whatever it might be. We all feel that way sometimes. And these external circumstances take a toll on us inside. That's what stress is. And so Paul says, and inside there was fear because of the stress, because of this uncertainty that was going on. And so we've been asking you, what stresses you you out? And the number one response... Bad preaching. That's the thing that stresses me out the most. Serious. Response we've received in our church is fear of the future. If you had to summarize all the different responses that we received, the first stress in our church is fear of the future. And so what is it about the future that so stresses us out? Well, it's unknown. It's uncertain. Can you give me a single example, Pastor Nelson, of any of the apostles preaching about that ever important fear of the future that was stressing people out? You know what's funny is is that I can actually cite something that's pretty close. It would be in the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul's warning, you know, don't worry about a, a letter that was supposed to have come to us basically saying that the day of the Lord had come. Yeah, talk about fear of the future, fear of eschatology, you know, that, that Christ had already come back. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen. We're not happy where we are now, and so we're stressed out about the future. So what do we do? How do we move from stress to rest in the future? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah, I, I need a rest resurrection because that's what the resurrection is all about. So turn over in your notes and you'll see this next section is titled, When I Feel Stressed About My Future. Whenever you feel stressed about the future, what should you do? Four steps today. Number one. Okay, good news. If you're feeling stressed, four simple things that you can do and you'll be and you'll be stress-free in no time because that's what Jesus is all about. He's the product that's being sold in this infomercial to bring you to less stress or to bring you to rest from stress. Remember, remember God's faithfulness in my past. Remember God's faithfulness in my past. You know, when you start looking forward into your future and you... You know, that sounded like a biblical verse. You turn, Where's that from? You feel stressed. The first step is to look back, to take, uh, take a look back at your past. You know, the Bible says over and over that we are to remember the past. In fact, the Old Testament has over 31 times where God says to his people, remember. And if you... So basically what you're saying, uh, Pastor Nelson, is, is that all of those times that the word remember occurs in the Bible... That the whole point was that God was teaching us the first principle of stress release? Amazing. I had no idea that that was why he was telling us to remember. Because he didn't want us to be stressed out. What a great God we have. How many easy payments of nine ninety five will I need to pay in order to get this stress relief? I'm sorry. I, I, that would be weekly payments. Easy weekly payments of 10% of my total income. 
Yeah, well, yeah. If you, if you recall, often in the Old Testament, whenever God did something great in the lives of the Israelites, they would build an altar. And that altar was to serve as a remembrance of God's faithfulness. So they would build this altar, then they would move forward in time, and they would be stressed out about something else. And God would say to them, remember. And they would look back and see that altar, and the altar was a visible reminder of God's faithfulness in the past, and that lowered their stress about the future. Uh, hang on a second here. No. 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 That is not... <laughs> that was not what the author was for to lower their stress about the future. Oh, my goodness. How is it that this guy has multiple campi of people sitting there eating this st- garbage up as if it's spiritual food? Come on. You see, we all need to build altars in our life. We all should keep a... What? We all need to build altars in our life? What is this guy talking about? Record of what God has done in our past so that we can go back and recall what he's done so that it will lower our stress about the future. You see, God's been faithful to you in the past, and he'll be faithful to you in the future. I I want you to see how David dealt with this, because King David apparently... Uh, so the stories in the Bible, we have actual stories about how God really helped David's stress and gave him rest. I had no idea those. That's what the, these passages were about. This is all new to me. There was a time in the 42nd Psalm where he was under tremendous stress and he was very discouraged about maybe things that were going on in his kingdom. And he said this in Psalm 42, verse five and six, he says, why am I discouraged? Why am I so sad? And then he has an upbeat moment and he says, I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my savior and my God. But then he falls back into his discouragement. He says, now I am deeply discouraged, but underline this phrase, if you will, I will remember your kindness. I will remember your kindness from Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, from the land of Mount Mazar. In other words, as I look out over all of my kingdom, God, I can remember that up until this point, you've been faithful to me. And because you've been faithful to me in the past, I have no reason to stress out about the future. Well, it's good to have altars. And uh, sometimes in modern day life, altars are mementos, things that represent things that you've accomplished, maybe little trophies or little celebrations. Maybe you keep something like that at home or you keep something like that. Is it me or I'm I'm like getting tired listening to this guy because he's he's speaking at Mach 4. At the office. I, I tend to keep these kind of things, and I brought one with me today. It, it's not uh, very extravagant at first glance, but this is a hymn book from the very first church that I pastored. Has anybody ever uh, been to a church where they sing hymns? Yeah, some of you have. So you have hymn books, so they usually sit in the pew in front of you. And So I was called at age 22 to be a pastor of this little tiny church in Charlotte, North Carolina. There were 12 people there the night they voted to call me as pastor. And I accepted the call, and little did I know that those 12 people hated each other. I mean, they did not get along at all. And so it was a tumultuous start to my ministry. I mean, it's first church, and here I am, and they're arguing about everything. And one day I finally get them to agree that we're going to make some changes to our sanctuary because it was in really bad shape and disrepair. And we were trying to get the community to come to our church. And so we decided to make some changes to our sanctuary. And this led to even bigger arguments, big arguments about what color the carpet would be. They finally voted on red, big arguments to would we recover the pews or just strip them down. We decided to recover them using this color. Just give you a second to think about that. It's kind of like Christmas time. You got the red carpet and the, 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 whatever the color of this is pews. And then of course we had to have matching hymn books. And these were the hymn books. And I stole one before I left. I'm just going to confess to you today. This is one of those. 
And the reason I stole it is because, like, I thought I was going to leave ministry. I mean, here I was, first church I'd ever pastored. All of this argument's going on. I, mean, I thought we were going to split the church, two little churches of six, you know. And one would have red carpet, the other would have, like, green pews or whatever. I mean, it was hard. Hi, I, mean, I literally almost left ministry. I laugh about it now, but it wasn't funny at the time. Hang on a second here. Is it me? See if this uh, it sounds like... Hi, it's Vince with ShamWow. This is for the house, the car. A regular towel doesn't work wet. This works wet or dry. It holds 20 times its weight in liquid. Cuts the job in half. Doesn't trip. Doesn't make a mess. Wring it out. You wash it in the washing machine. Here's some cola. Okay, that's the ShamWow guy. Is it me or does this pastor... He's delivering his sermon at this same speed. Hang on. Okay. Right. And so I kept this hymn book. And so now when everything's get tough, when things aren't exactly going the way I wanted to in my career, you know, I'll look at that hymn book and I'll say, man, it's really tough these days. Or we've really got this going on at the journey. Or boy, this is an uphill battle. I look back and I say, you know, it was nothing compared to those 12 cats I was trying to herd back in Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, I, I think there's a similarity in this. Wine, coffee, pet stains. Not only is the damage going to be on top, there's your mildew. That is going to smell. Look at this. Put on the spill. Turn it over without even putting any pressure. 50% of the cola right there. You following me, camera guy? The other 50%, the color starts to come up. No other towel is going to do that. It yeah, you know, again, I think uh, Pastor Nelson here from Journey Church he sounds just like the sham wow guy. He's delivering at that really fast pace, and he's giving you four easy steps that you can do to relieve stress in your life. You see, God is like sham wow. It's like I, we can call Jesus, we can call him stress, stress relief now, or serenity now. That's what we call. We can call Jesus serenity now. And in fact, there's a hymn that's in this book that I will sometimes go to during those times. It's hymn number 644, for those of you keeping score at home. And it's called Count Your Blessings. You ever heard this hymn? It goes, when, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged... How on earth would they know that hymn? You guys don't sing hymns in your church. <clears throat> thinking all is lost. Count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. So amid the conflict with the great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God hath done. Well, whenever you feel fear about your future, the first step is to count your blessings from the past, to remember God's faithfulness in the past. And then you're ready to go to step number two, which is this. Evaluate the specific source of my stress. Okay, hang on a second. Number one is remember God's faithfulness. You go into the past and make an altar and evaluate the source of your stress. Evaluate the source. Okay, got it. What is it exactly that's causing me the stress? Evaluate the specific source of my stress. All right, let me think about this. Um, at the moment, the specific source of my stress is this completely gospelless, not biblically based, out of context, scripture twisted infomercial of a thing that's supposed to be a sermon. Yeah, that, that pretty much is the source of my current stress. 
You know, I have people tell me all the time, Nelson, I'm just stressed out. And I'll say, well, what are you stressed out about? And they say, well, everything, you know. And a lot of times we feel that way. Sometimes we just feel like we're stressed out about everything. But when we dig a little deeper, it's not usually everything. It's usually this one particularly difficult person at work. Or it's this one relationship that's just not going the way you want it. Or it's this one thing where you don't have purpose and you can't find fulfillment. And so what we have to do is we have to get beyond the cloud of everything and find the specific. What is it specifically that's causing you the stress? And somehow or another, when you name it, 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 it lowers your stress level because now you can deal with it. Wow, that, that's amazing. Can you, um, I can't wait to hear how you back this up from scripture, by the way, because I've, you know, read the Bible through, you know, several times, actually more than that. But, um, and I don't ever recall this being in the Bible anywhere. Yesterday. Seven years ago, if that makes sense. So seven years ago yesterday, I was in a time of extreme stress because we were about to start this church. You see, the journey today is seven years old. And back in 2002, my wife and I had been living here for about six months, and we were about to launch this church. And it was at the Triad Theater on the Upper West Side, down at 72nd Street between Broadway and uh, Columbus. And man, on that Saturday night, I couldn't sleep. I was bouncing off the walls. I was close to a nervous breakdown. I mean, I really was stressed out. I- so did you apply these four easy principles that you're telling us about to, to take you down and, and give you rest? I didn't know. I mean, I had it all on the line uh, with this new church that's getting started. And Kelly finally said to me, she said, look, what is it exactly that's causing you stress? And so I got out my journal and I wrote down some things and I I went back and I reread that this week. And here's what I wrote in my journal way back then. I wrote, uh, I'm stressed out because I don't know if anybody will show up. I'm stressed out because I'm worried about how the sermon will go. I'm stressed out about the setup because we were in this bar, comedy club kind of location. I didn't know how it was going to go. I was stressed out about whether or not Pastor Carrick would be sober. And on and on I wrote in my journal. And you know what's surprising is, last night I was pretty stressed out about today's Easter, seven years later. So I made some more notes in my journal, and here's what I wrote last night. Will anyone show up? How will the sermon go? Will we be set up on time? Will Pastor Carrick be sober? I mean, there's just some things that just never change. And so when you identify exactly what it is that, that you're facing, it helps lower your stress. Now, we've been asking you, what stresses you out? And so we've been doing surveys through our Facebook fan page and other ways that we have to do that. And what we found out is... I would like to remind everybody listening to Fighting for the Faith at this moment that this sermon was delivered on Easter Sunday, 2009, at the Journey Church. Think about that. Just let that little factoid sink in. Couldn't possibly preach about Jesus and his resurrection now, could we? No, not on Easter. As in our church, there are five top stressors that people face. It's on your stress to rest uh, postcard. The one we're talking about today. Number one, the big one is the future. You're stressed out about the future, and that's why we're talking about today's message. Uh, one that I wasn't surprised about is my finances. People are very stressed out about your finances, but did you know you don't have to be? In fact, we're going to talk about that next week, and I hope you'll make a decision now to be back next week as we talk about this important topic of finances. Uh, People said they're stressed out about my career. No surprise, but here's one that's a surprise. The last one. People in our church said we're stressed out about sex. We found out from singles they're stressed out about not having enough sex, and we found out from married couples, well, basically the same thing. And so everybody's... Uh, By the way, this would be an example of the quintessential seeker-sensitive method. What do you do? You uh, take a survey... And you ask people different things. What do they want to hear about? And this is, 
they surveyed their people and what they find out that people are stressed about their their finances they're stressed about their job they're stressed about um, well sex and so what does this church do they go and they make sure that they scratch those itching ears and give people the sermon and the information that they're looking for because that's what no it's not what the disciples and it's not what Jesus did at all stressed about this issue. So we're going to address this in this series, and you see where we're going over the next few weeks. And one of the things I want to help you evaluate today is what is it specifically that you're stressed out about? And then once you know what that is, understand that there's good stress and there's bad stress. Did you know that? There's good stress. In your notes, it's called you stress. You from the Latin word meaning good. It means good stress. Good stress is... (laughs) What? You from the Latin meaning good, boy. That sounds like a biblical sermon, doesn't he? He threw in a Latin phrase. Actually, it would be a little. Uh, oh man, stuff that God allows in your life to grow you. Our good stresses are good decisions that you make that are going to grow you. Let me give you an example. I mean, seven years ago when I was under all that stress about starting this church, that was good stress. I mean, this was God's plan for my life to lead this church and start this church. And so it's been good stress. Are you sure? Why would God have been the author of the plan for you to start this church, considering the fact that you're not obeying God's command for preachers, and that would be to preach the word? You know, and, you know, preach Christ and him crucified. Why should we believe that God had anything to do with the founding of your church? You're not preaching about Christ. It's caused me to grow, and it's made me more like Jesus, uh, having worked here and being part of this. And, uh, you know, today I love you guys and love being a part of what we're doing, and I'm happy that we're celebrating seven years and look forward to celebrating 70 years. That was a good stress. Some of you joined a growth group this past semester. And, and you'd never been in a growth group before, but you decided, you know, on Tuesday nights, I'm going to go to my group. And that added stress to your life because now you had to leave work on time on Tuesday nights. You had to do the reading and read the Bible studies and, you know, pray for one another and things like that. But that was a good stress because it made you more like Jesus Christ. God sometimes allows good stress to come into our lives so that we grow. You know, in fact, Jesus talked about this. And Jesus, Jesus talked about you stress. That would be the good stress. He's from the Latin. Because, you know, you stress, the good stress. Face the good stressors of life. In fact, in Mark 6.31, Jesus said... Okay, hang on a second here. Mark 6.31. We're going to do a little pre-work. Before we let uh, Pastor Nelson twist God's word, we're just going to pause the tape here and go there ourselves. Uh, Let's see, Mark chapter 6. Uh-huh. And he says that verse 31 is Jesus talking about good stress. Let's take a look here. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Okay. Let's see here. So the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Okay, so apparently Jesus sent out the 70 here, I think. He, um, yeah, uh-huh. And uh, he sent them out and, no, actually, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority. Here we go. Uh, context here is Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them not to take, uh, to take nothing for their journey except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, 
but to wear sandals and not to put on tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if anyone will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So when they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out demons and anointed many people with oil, and they were sick, and the sick were healed, etc. Okay, so then we got this little interlude here of the story of Herod and his birthday party that led to um, John the Baptist's death. And then we got the then we got Mark six thirty. We got the apostles coming back from their sending out, and the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat." So what happened is is that the apostles come back from being sent out on this little mini mission. And they come back, and and there's a lot of people around, and and Jesus has come to a desolate place and get some rest. I mean, they just got done. Got yeah, they need to kind of cool down after all this. Okay, so let's let's see how he, uh, Pastor Nelson here deals with um, uh, this. Here we go. Let's get away from the crowds for a while and rest. Why? Because he'd been doing all this ministry around the area. He said there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. It wasn't that he was doing anything wrong. It was a good stress. You know, we've got a group of people right now in our church who are adding some good stress to their life. They decided to go on a mission trip to work with our partner church in South Africa where we go and send teams and they work with children who have been orphaned from HIV AIDS. Well, that's a good stress. Yeah, they're having to raise money and they're having to recruit prayer support and they're having to make travel plans and they're going to take a week off of work and fly halfway around the world. But that's a good stress because for them, that's... Uh, Pastor Nelson, just a quick question. How is it that you can justify abdicating your job as a pastor? Uh, And your job is laid out so clearly in Scripture. Your job is to preach the Word. Just wondering how it is that you have somehow found a loophole and have exempted yourself from that particular duty of a pastor. It's going to be the best thing probably that happens in their lives this year. And so there's good stress that we allow into our life. Could, could I ask you to uh, add some good stress to your life? Could, could I add some you stress to your life today? Find your connection card, if you will. And look on the back of your connection card. If it's your first time here with us, we have some next steps on the back of the card. And next step number three is to attend as much as possible the rest of the series with God's help. You know, maybe you haven't been as regular in church attendance as you should be. And, and maybe. All right, pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. But it's not even the right kind of guilt. Uh, this is guilt for not showing up regularly at their weekly self help um, seminars. Maybe, you know, you need to add some good stress into your life. And so why don't you decide today, you know, I'm here on this first Sunday. There's five more weeks and it's going to end with sex. So, you know, you got that to look forward to. Why don't you decide today to attend as much as possible the rest of the series with God's help and just say, God, if you work it out, if you clear up my schedule, I'll be here for the next five weeks. That's a good stress. And here's the thing. If you don't have enough good stress in your life, you're always going to fall into distress which back in your notes is what bad stress is. Bad stress is distress. Bad stress is when something happens in your life as a result of doing something that's not God's will. Such as not preaching the word on a Sunday morning as the head pastor, and this is supposed to be a sermon about God's word. 
definitely would cause distress with people because what would that do? It would make them continue to keep them in darkness. It would continue to keep people biblically illiterate, not knowing what God's word teaches. It would leave them susceptible to the attacks of the devil and to those who are not even saved, not, not, who don't even trust in Christ for their salvation, it leaves them dead and in, in unbelief and in the trespasses and, and their sins and under God's wrath. We'll talk about distress, because there's a big distressor coming at the end of ages. That would be Christ's return in glory when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And see, there's a reason why you, pastor, have been given the job of feeding God's sheep and preaching the word, and that is to make it so that God's sheep don't get picked off by the devil. Talk about distress or, you know, or, oh man. And so whenever we choose to do something that's not God's will. Like not preaching the word from the pulpit on a Sunday, uh, an Easter Sunday. There are consequences and those consequences are often distress. It's when we start drinking too much and it leads to a breakup. It's when we start uh, holding on to bitterness and we don't forgive and that leads to relationship failure. It's like when a pastor doesn't preach God's word and it leads to heresy and false doctrine and false belief and false converts. Just saying. It's when we engage in premarital sex and that leads to a pregnancy scare. That's distress at those moments in your life. Now understand at those moments, God hasn't left you. God will grow you through distress, just like he will grow you through you stress. But God says, if you have enough good stress in your life, you can minimize the distress in your life. And that's what, where does it say that? Come on. Let's hear the claim again here. I'm going to back up the tape just a couple of seconds. I want to hear this claim. Here we go. Marital sex, and that leads to a pregnancy scare. That's distress at those moments in your life. Now, understand at those moments, God hasn't left you. God will grow you through distress, just like He will grow you through you stress. But God says if you have enough good stress in your life, you can minimize the distress in your life. And that's really God says that if you have enough good stress in your life, that it will minimize the bad stress in your life. Um, well, let's see here. Um, I have a few things I could say about that. I could remind you that that's not true. Or I could scream and yell and point out the fact that is a bald face lie. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that if you increase your good stress, it'll decrease your bad stress. The Bible doesn't talk about such things, sir. And you just said that God said it. You're lying through your teeth and you're you're taking God's name in vain by making God say things that he didn't even say. <sighs> it's a very important principle. Jesus talked about that. You can study this when you get home. It's in Matthew 5, 31 through 34. But just evaluate. Oh, no, 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 no. Sermon on the Mount does not teach anything of the sort. Wait. The specific source of your stress, remember... Matthew 5, 31 through 34. Hang on a second here. We'll just have to go there ourselves. Matthew 5, 31 through 34. Let's see here. All right. Um, I'm not seeing anything here. Let me read. He said that God says that if you increase your good stress, it will decrease your bad stress. Matthew, well, let's let's make sure I got this right because that passage he gave doesn't even seem to make any sense. Backing up the tape just a little bit again. Here we go. 
grow you through youth stress. But God says if you have enough good stress in your life, you can minimize the distress in your life. And that's a very important principle. Jesus talked about that. You can study this when you get home. It's in Matthew 5, 31 through 34. But just... Matthew 5, 31 through 34, from the English Sanctified Version, my favorite translation, it says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said that uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath. At all, either by heaven or on its, or or for it is the throne of God. I kid you not. That's what Matthew five thirty one through thirty four says. Maybe he meant Matthew six. Let's let's see here. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, "What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Mm-hmm. I think he meant chapter 6 rather than chapter 5. But even then, nowhere in this passage does it say anything about increasing good stress to relieve distress. This guy is misusing God's Bible, it, 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 the word, so badly. It, this is terrible. Just evaluate. Notice I'm experiencing stress. I just wanted to make sure that you all picked up on that, you know. Because this is supposed to be a stress relief sermon. Notice that my stress level's going up. Just didn't want you to lose sight of that little fact. The specific source of your stress. Remember God's faithfulness in the past and then across the page. Number three, as you're going through this stress, remember, number three, stick to what I know is right. Stick to what I know is right. Stick to what I know is right. Okay. By the way, can you point me to a passage of Scripture where all four of these stress-relieving steps are spoken of in, in in a single paragraph at the same time? You know, the uh, the epistle of stress relief. You know, it's right after Ephesians, right? You see, stress has a way of clouding our decision-making ability. Uh, and if you've been an adult for more than two years, you've probably had this situation. You get under stress, and because of that stress, you make a bad decision, and then later you regret it. I mean, we've all been there. And so what I'm saying is be very careful about making big decisions in your life when you're under stress. Don't make big relationship decisions when you're under stress. Don't make big career decisions when you're under stress. Uh, what passages of Scripture is this found in again? Because if you do, you might find yourself in this situation. Uh, one psychiatrist had to say this about this situation. It says, It is known that people under stress have a greater tendency to engage in unhealthy behaviors, such as excessive use or abuse of alcohol and drugs, cigarette smoking, and making poor nutritional choices. Then, they're less stressed counterparts. The- you know, it's funny that you would say that because the stress of this sermon it, you know, has caused me to drink, smoke, and, uh, and eat all at the same time while listening to this. It's just amazing how much I'm abusing my body as a result of the stress of this bad sermon. 
These unhealthy behaviors can further increase the severity of symptoms related to stress, often leading to a vicious cycle of symptoms and unhealthy behaviors. Just makes sense, right? So you've got to be careful that when there's stress in your life, you stick with what you know is right. Here's what I've seen as a pastor. I've seen a married couple, a newly married couple, get under stress. By the way, by the way, did you know that one of the top 10 stressors in life is getting married? I mean, trying to bring two people together into this new marriage, it can stress you out. And so a newly married... Well, I suggest that you avoid that then. I mean, if this is... Uh, <clears throat> Pastor Nelson, have you ever heard of sin? Just wondering. Uh, it's, it's actually a biblical concept. It's about rebelling against God. And Christ actually died on the cross to save us from our sins. You know, to save us from the wrath of God. He died on the cross for our sins. Punished in our place. Raised from the dead three days later for our justification. This is called the gospel. Never heard of it? Uh, Jesus didn't come to make my life less stressful if I apply these four easy principles that you've laid out like the sham wow guy couple gets stressed and then they decide to stop going to church because they want to spend Sundays maybe just working on the relationship. And then that just leads to even greater arguments. Another person gets a new project at work or they get promoted and they take on a new workload. And whereas they used to get up... Could you actually talk about the real problem that mankind faces? You know, our sin and the wrath of God? Serious. Talk about distress. It's going to be really bad. For all the people in your church on the last day, they're going to be experiencing major distress and they're going to be looking at you going, why didn't you tell us? Up in the morning and spend time with God and time in prayer. Now they just get dressed and rush off to work because they need more time in the day. Or then a third person gets overwhelmed with finances or they fall into a bad relationship. And and instead of continuing to go to their growth group and to be around other Christians, they pull away from the group trying to just figure it out by themselves. Where are growth groups mentioned in Scripture? Just wondering. And in every one of these cases, the people pull away from the very thing that could help them in their stress. And so that leads to that vicious cycle that the psychiatrist was talking about. Because for the married couple who's dealing with the stress of a new marriage, the best thing they could do is to go to church together. For the busy executive who has so... So you found it more important on Easter Sunday to preach uh, stuff that you learned from a psychiatrist than to actually preach a sermon about Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. You know, this reminds... You know, there's a saying that comes to uh, mind from that old series, uh, I Love Lucy. Uh, Ricky saying to Lucy, Lucy, you have some splaining to do. Uh, Pastor Nelson, I hate to say this, but when Christ returns, you're going to have some splaining to do because you're not doing your job. Your job is to preach the word. You're not doing that. So much stuff to do. The best thing she could do would be to start the day in prayer so that they could get God's power to help out with all the new stress. Or the guy going through the bad relationship or maybe dealing with financial stress. The best thing he could do is to continue to go to his growth group so he can be around people who care for him and will pray for him and support him. And so it's very tempting when we're under stress to pull away from what matters most. But we've got to make sure we continue to do what's right because it's only then that we get God's power in our life. Oh, so we have to do what's right because only when we do what's right do we get God's power. Um, that's a lie. Um, if that's true, then nobody gets God's power because 
nobody does what's right. Remember, the law demands perfect obedience. Perfect. And if you want to be saved by the law, then you have to keep it perfectly. Best of luck to you, by the way. In fact, that's what First Peter is talking about. First Peter 3.12, it says, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are opened to their prayers. Did you catch that? You do what's right, you get God's power. You have no concept of the gospel, sir. And this is not Christianity. This is nothing but a therapeutic law-based religion. But it's not Christianity. But... The Lord turns his face. That's a bad image. The Lord turns his face against those who do evil. So when you start doing what's wrong and you fall into that vicious cycle, you not only hurt yourself, but you miss out on God. Like like when you do wrong by not preaching God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Read it. And so the issue is, what are you going to focus on during times of stress? Well, look at this passage, Philippians 4, 8 and 9. It says, fix your thoughts. Here's what you should focus on. What is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable? Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise, parenthetically, especially when you're under stress. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Uh, That whole parenthetical thing that you stuck in there, that's not in the text at all. It doesn't say anything about stress. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then here's the promise. You might underline this. Then the God of peace will be with you. You see, God promises that when you keep doing what's right, you get his presence. All right, let's just go with that for a second, Pastor Nelson. When you do what's right, then you get his presence, right? Um, really, how many days go by between your sins? Okay, days may be too long. Um, how many, how many hours go by? But okay, hours might be too long. Um, how many minutes go by between your the minutes might be too long too? How many seconds between sins for you, Pastor Nelson? Um, if you're sinning that much, um, are you doing what's right to earn this presence and God's peace? I don't think so. You have no concept of what God's law demands. You do not even know what the Christian religion actually teaches. This would be what we call moralistic, therapeutic deism. I mean, we're all happy that there's a God in your system, but you don't really need a crucified Savior in your religion. Um, That's kind of superfluous, don't you think? Which probably explains why you're not actually preaching about Christ's death and resurrection on Easter. You don't really need a dead and risen Savior at all. And therefore, his peace. And so it really comes down to an issue of trust. Who are you trusting during times of stress? And that takes us to the last step, which is on the back of your notes, the T. And it is to trust God completely with my future. Trust God completely with my future. You know, stress is really an issue of trust. Stress is a warning light. By the way, did you know that faith in Christ is all about trust in Christ? Trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins. Trusting in him that his 
death on the cross is sufficient, that Christ is sufficient for our salvation. Kind of like a warning light on a car or something. Stress tells you something's out of whack. It tells you that you've got misplaced trust. You know, I was reminded of this a couple weeks ago. How funny that you're turning trust into a legalistic work. Ago, I was uh, traveling and doing some speaking around the country, and I had to fly from here to Detroit. And uh, the conference had arranged for somebody to come and pick me up at the airport and take me to my speaking engagement. And uh, I had trouble getting out with that person all week. I, I couldn't reach him on my cell phone. We did trade some emails. We traded a couple of texts, but I never actually spoke to the person. And so when I left LaGuardia flying up to Detroit, I was pretty stressed out because I was like, is, is he going to be there? Is he going to pick me up? Are we going to be able to make it to the conference? Will I be able to make my assigned time? And so when I landed on the ground, I was like a nervous wreck. I mean, I was pretty, uh, you know, heated up. And I tried to call him as soon as I landed and I got voicemail again. And I walked out, you know, with my carry-on bag, hoping that, you know, he was going to come by and pick me up. And by the time I finally got in the car, man, I was just so stressed. And it just took me like the whole ride to the conference to kind of settle down and say, okay, I'm here in Detroit. You know, let's focus on what I'm doing. And that was the exact opposite of a situation I had a couple of days later when I was flying to Atlanta to speak. Because whenever I fly down south, I've got a, I've got a friend who picks me up and his name is Jimmy. And Jimmy has a history with me of being trustworthy. And so when I landed in Atlanta, I wasn't stressed. I felt very confident that Jimmy was going to be there. I picked up the phone. I called him. It went to voicemail. I wasn't stressed. I knew he would be there for me. I walk outside with my carry-on bag, and sure enough, Jimmy comes pulling up and picks me up, and we're off to the, to the conference. And I'm thinking, what was the difference in those two issues? Well, the issue is, could I trust the person or not? I mean, I didn't know this person in Detroit well enough to know if I could trust him. But when it came to Jimmy, we have a longstanding relationship, and I just knew that I could trust him. And so same situation, you know, different people, but the real issue was misplaced trust. Look, if you're feeling stressed out about your career, maybe it's because you're trusting in the wrong person when it comes to your career. If you're feeling stressed out about your finances, maybe it's because you've got trust in the wrong place. If you're feeling stressed out about relationships or marriage, maybe it's because you've got your trust in the wrong place. You want to put your trust in someone who's been there in the past, will be there today, and is completely trustworthy when it comes to your future. There's only one place. All right. Maybe this is our gospel nugget. Remember, this was an Easter Sunday sermon. That you can properly place your trust, and that's in God. That's in God. God says this about your future. Listen to these words. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you- By the way, he's, uh, that's completely taken out of context. That wasn't written for everybody, dude. Read it in context. Give you a future and a hope. And then God goes on to say in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with, circle this word, all. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The reason you're stressed out is because that area of stress has not been given over to God. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will. Here's the word again. In all that you do, and he will show you which path to take. Look, do you need to trust God today with some area of your life? With your work life? With your financial life? Trust God with some area of my life? Dude, have you ever heard of sin and, the re- and repentance? 
trust God with some area of my life? You know, I'm just going to, you know, God, um, you know, I'm doing okay in the, in several areas of my life, but you know, when it comes to this whole, you know, uh, the, the whole financial thing, you know, I, I'm a little stressed out. So I, I need to, I'm just going to hand that piece over to you, but I'm doing okay. Otherwise. With some other area that I haven't mentioned, why not today? Just take that area and say, God, I'm handing this over to you. And when you hand your stress over to God, God in return gives you his rest. You know, maybe your situation today is that you need to hand all of your life over to God. You need to become a Christian. And the way you hand your life over to God is you become a follower of God's son, Jesus Christ. Really? And and how do I do that? You believe that Jesus, whose resurrection we celebrated today. You celebrated the resurrection today? When did you do that? Oh, maybe you sang a 7-Eleven song about it. Is your Savior, is your Lord. And when you do, that same resurrection power that saved Christ from the dead is the same power that will forgive you of your sins, give you a purpose for living now. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Whoa! That's the first mention of sin the entire sermon. We're 24 minutes and 8 seconds into it, and you just, in passing... This is sin. There went. Mentioned it in passing. Forgive you of your sins and give you a purpose for living. Where does it say in Scripture that that God forgives us of our sins and gives us a purpose for living? Yep. I smell Rick Warren here. Yeah. And give you a future home in heaven. And if you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, why not today? Why not believe today? Believe what? In Jesus' stress relief? And you say he forgives my sin. What's a sin? Is a sin when I'm stressed out? When I, you know, I, I, you know, when I'm, I've got an area of my life that's out of whack and I, I'm not experiencing you stress, but I'm experiencing distress. Is that a sin? If I was, if I was an unbeliever and I showed up, I had no concept of what it is you're talking about. I'm saying yes to what? To Jesus's stress relief? Well, as part of this series, we're going to do something that's a little different. You see it in your notes. It's called the application zone. Near the end of each of the messages in this series, we're going to take just a few moments and we're going to spend some time reflecting on what we've studied uh, during our time. So I'm going to ask you during this time to not get up, to not get ready to go, but instead just to stay right where you are and to look back over your notes or maybe to take your connection card and look over some next steps. And we're going to put two minutes on the clock. In fact, uh, if we have that back in the media area, let's go ahead and put two minutes up on the clock. And I'm going to give you two minutes to go ahead and reflect and say, God, how do you want me to apply what we've studied today? So let's just go ahead and do that right now. I'm going to quit talking. You look over your notes, look over your next steps. What's God saying to you today? What do you need to apply? (laughs) Well, um, God's telling me that I need to run. I, I should never show up at your church again and that you are a false teacher and you're sending people to hell. That's weird, isn't that? That's exactly what I heard God saying. You can trust God completely. With you can what? trust God with your finances. You can trust God with your career. I'm going crazy. Oh, my goodness. You can trust God with your relationships. You can trust God with your future. You can trust God with eternity. And if you've never completely turned your life over to God, 
then why not do that today? And when things continue to go wrong, he'll turn around and say, you know what? It's obvious that you, you just didn't completely turn your life over to God. You just only gave him some of it. You do that by deciding to trust Jesus Christ. To say, for what? Say, Jesus, I invite you to be my savior, to be my leader, to be my Lord. I mean, why not trust God's son completely today? Because I have no concept of what Jesus is, who he was, or what he did. If I'm an unbeliever and I showed up and this was this, this I didn't hear, hear anything about Jesus. Except where you want me to trust him and he's a good stress reliever? Good night. I can go to one of those day spas and have them, you know, light a candle and put the cucumbers on my eyeballs. That would be a great stress relief. I don't need a Jesus for stress relief. Just need a good deep tissue massage. You know, on that Easter Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, the friends of Jesus arrived at the tomb for what they thought was going to be a burial visit. But when they got there, they met an angel. And I want you to see the words the angel said on that Resurrection Sunday 2,000 years ago. It's up here on the screen. It says, Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has been raised from the dead just as he said would happen. You see, Jesus is risen. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead 2,000 years ago is the power that's available in your life to take you from a place of stress to a place of rest. No. No, that is not, that is not a valid application of the resurrection of Jesus Christ at all. You are a heretic. Or to take you from a place of sin to a place of forgiveness. To, think, to take you from a place of purposelessness to a place of being purposeful. And Yeah, you know, the whole sin forgiveness thing is just one of the laundry list of things that's being offered to you. Oh my goodness. All of that is yours when you believe in Jesus Christ. Hey, all of that is yours when you believe in Jesus Christ. Wow, what a great deal. It's wet or dry. It holds 20 times its weight in liquid. Cuts the job in half. Doesn't drip. Doesn't make a mess. Wring it out. You wash it in the washing machine. Here's some cola. Wine, coffee, pet stains. Not only is the damage going to be on top. There's your mildew. That is going to smell. Look at this. Put on the spill. Turn it over. Without even putting any pressure. 50% of the cola right there. You following me, camera guy? The other 50%, the color starts to come up. No other towel is going to do that. It acts like a... That's right. No other, no other savior, no other religious figure is going to help you with your stress. Are you suffering from purposelessness? Are you stressed out? You just need Jesus now. Jesus now will help you. Well, he'll forgive you of your sins, take you from a spot of sinfulness to forgiveness. He will give you... Uh, are you? Do you have a purposeless life? He'll give you a purpose. No problem. Are you stressed in your finances? Are you stressed in your love life? Are you stressed in your career and your work? Jesus now. I'm telling you, do you just need to trust in him. Come right now and make a decision to apply Jesus to your life and you can have a life of less stress and purpose. And also we'll throw in a free forgiveness of sins. Vacuum. And look at this. Virtually dry on the bottom. You're going to spend $20 every month on paper towels anyway. The mini ShamWows are for everyday use. You'll get four ShamWows per day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You get four Jesus Nows if you just act now. Oh, man. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, man. Sermon reviews here at uh, Fighting for the Faith are always um, 
how shall we say it, entertaining. Uh, today's offering was um, that, to say the least. I want to remind you uh, that the work we do here at Fighting for the Faith, we depend on you in order to pay our bills so that we can continue to compare what people say to the Word of God and critique people, so uh, pastors like this, so that people's eyes are open to the fact that they're not being fed the Word of God, they're not being taught the Word of God, and that these types of churches are the types of churches that people need to be fleeing and they need to find pastors who are actually shepherds. Will you partner with Fighting for the Faith and help us to continue bringing it to you? You can do so by visiting FightingForTheFaith.com and clicking on our friendly donate button, which allows you to give your gift via secure online credit card processing via the Internet. Or if you would like to do it the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. Zero, three, eight. Wow, that was bad. Wow, wow. <laughs> All right. Oh, sadly, we are at the end of another program. Tomorrow, we'll we'll talk about the Taliban. We'll talk about uh, the fact that churchgoers and pastors are struggling to define spiritual maturity, and we will finally get to Exodus chapter ten. I promise. All right. If you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can be my friend on Facebook. I'm a friendly guy. Look me up. My name is Chris Roseboro. Or if you would like to uh, receive our subversive microblogging tweets at Twitter, you can. My name there is Pirate Christian. Hey, until tomorrow, may God bless you. <laughs> <laughs>